chapter 6, we'll be picking up in verse 47. Let me uh, beseech the Lord's mercies one more time for our study, and then we will, uh, we will dig in. Father, thank you that you are with us always. Thank you that you have already uh, been honored and worshipped here in this place. I pray that will continue on even now as we open up your word. I pray, God, that you would be worshipped and exalted as we have come here to humble ourselves before your word, to learn from you. And I pray for everybody here, including myself, that we would be blessed as we come to the scriptures seeking you and a greater knowledge of you and wanting to walk in obedience to you, Father. And so, Lord, everybody in here, needs, we all need you. Uh, it's, it's hard in this world in which we live, and we all have many different struggles and frustrations and discouragements and fears galore, and so we're just asking God that we, we could be refreshed here as we gather together in Christian fellowship and gather in your, uh, in your word, and so please bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so by now... I'm sure most of us have probably heard of things like uh, cancel culture. That's kind of a term that's popular in this day and age. Maybe you haven't heard of that. But basically, the idea is, is that if you say or do something that is perceived as offensive uh, to, to, in the culture and the day and age in which we live, then there will be a harsh blowback that will come against you. And if you have any kind of... Uh, you know, online presence, social media presence, or if you have, you know, if you're a, a politician or a movie star or a recording artist or anything of, of the sort, and you do or say something that is perceived as offensive, you will be canceled. The, the, the mob will come after you, and they will, they will seek to, uh, to shut you down, if you will. And one of the ways in which this has, um, another way in which, uh, I guess you could say, this happens, or, or another reason why this happens as of late is something called cultural appropriation. I'm not trying to get all political here. I'm going somewhere with this. But uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of cultural appropriation, but the, the idea there is that when you take something that is not yours, not of your culture um, or, or ethnicity, and you embrace it, you own it, kind of make it your own. It could, be, uh, it could be a hairstyle. It could be a fashion statement. It could be anything like that. Uh, there will be a, a fierce outrage that will ensue. And a really good example of this is even with sports teams these days. And so uh, what the Cleveland Indians are now the Cleveland Guardians. Is that right? And there's a bunch of, a bunch of that, you know. Uh, a bunch of that has happened, all kinds of teams, because that would be considered cultural appropriation. It's not yours. It's not your heritage. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's foreign to you. And so you're not allowed to make that your own. You're not allowed to celebrate that or even champion that because it's not yours. And so that's, that's kind of the idea. I'm, I know that's totally an oversimplification, and I might even be accused of misrepresenting that. I don't know. But as far as I understand it, that's kind of the idea of it, right? And so... Um, it's native to a culture which, to which you are a foreigner, right? Well, today we're going to talk about what I'm calling spiritual appropriation. Spiritual appropriation. Jesus identifies himself as the bread from heaven. 
So this is a place that is very foreign to us, foreign to the, to the world, heaven, right? And so Jesus says that he is from heaven. He has identified himself as the bread from heaven. But unlike the cancel culture, Jesus invites us to appropriate the bread from heaven. Jesus came down from heaven. He said, I'm not from the world. I'm not of the world. I have come down from heaven. I am the bread of heaven. But I invite you to partake of this bread. I invite you not only to, to hear it, to see it, but to believe it and to make it your own. And that's the idea of appropriation is to, to make it our own. And as I was reading through several commentaries, that's the word that just kept popping up over and over and over is appropriation. And that is making what Christ has done for us our own, making it personal, right? It's not abstract, it's not theoretical, it's not somebody else's. It is ours in a very personal and real way. And we are invited to appropriate it. It's not a taboo spiritually. Jesus says, it is foreign to you, it is not of this world, it has come down from heaven, and I'm inviting you to eat of it, to eat of it. And so I guess a... a subtitle of this message could be don't just look at the bread eat it right and so spiritual appropriation to respond to the invitation and to receive the bread today we continue our journey through john chapter 6 it is a very long chapter it's 71 verses and i would you know say again the theme of today's sermon it's a very practical one uh, Jesus has already declared who he is over and over again. And now he's saying, you need to respond to that. You need to respond to it. It's not enough just to hear it and see it. You have to believe it. You have to make it your own. You have to commit to it. Jesus calls us to a place of full commitment, right? And so Jesus requires a response. Christianity requires action, it's not a spectator sport. It's not. Many of us may see it that way or treat it that way, but it's not enough to simply hear the truths of Scripture. We have to act upon them. We have to obey them. The Scriptures declare such to be the case. You know, one of the classic texts, James chapter 1, verse 21, he starts by saying this, Lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness, and listen to this, and receive. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So receive the word. Receive it. But then he says this, verse 22, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. So it's not enough just to hear it and even receive it. You've got to do it. We are called to action. We must do it. And he says, If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. He observes himself and goes away immediately, forgets what kind of man he was. So this is like a person looking in the mirror, seeing the need to take care of one's face or hair or, or shave or whatever the case may be, and then just not doing it, just walking away. That's what it's like to look into the Word of God, see the need, see that we need to act upon the Word of God and obey it, yet we don't. Well, verse 25 says, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, as not a forgetful hearer, but a doer, this one will be blessed in what he does. So there's a blessing that comes with doing what the Word of God says. Amen? There's a blessing that comes with it. It's not enough to just hear it. we got to do it. 
Well, Jesus says the same exact thing. In John chapter 13, verse 14, after Jesus has washed the disciples' feet, He says this, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. Now listen to this, verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus says, you call me Lord and teacher, that's good, I am. I've given you an example to follow. If I have washed your feet, how much more should you care for the needs of one another and serve each other in a very humble way? And he says that uh, if you know these things and actually do them, you're blessed. Blessed. The word is happy, literally. And so there's a blessing that comes with doing what the Word of God says. So in our text today, Jesus declares who He is, and then He gives the hearers certain promises that will be theirs if they respond in faith. He says, He tells them clearly who He is, and promises that will follow if they would respond in faith, if they would believe. Unfortunately, however, the people don't respond favorably in this chapter. Most of us probably know by the end of this chapter, what do the people do? They, walk, they turn away. They walk away. They don't respond favorably. And so with that, let's go ahead and dig in. In our text today, we're looking at verses 47 through 59. And uh, really, I would just say two main points that we will see. And first, Jesus declares Himself to be the bread of heaven. And then we'll see that Jesus dismays the crowd with His shocking language. And this is a, it is a peculiar text. I'll just be honest about that. It's, it's a strange one, you know. And it's funny it lands on Father's Day. Because I, as I said last year on Mother's Day, I talked about satanic opposition or something like that. And so, uh, at any rate, so now, dads, this is your turn. We're going to get kind of weird today. Uh, it ain't me, though. It's the words of Jesus. So, with that, look, uh, look with me, if you will, at verse 47. It says, Most assuredly, I say to you, He who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. So Jesus says, most assuredly, if you're reading the New King James there, and that that phrase, it changes depending on the translation. You may be used to verily, verily, I say unto you, or maybe truly, truly, or even amen, amen. And this is just very emphatic language. Jesus uses this little statement frequently, and when he says it, he's basically saying, listen up. Listen to what I'm about to say, because this is very important, very important. The emphasis is there. So most assuredly, I say to you, I am the bread of life. So as I have already stated, this is the first of the seven I Am statements. These are unique to the Gospel of John. Jesus attaches this I Am to seven different little phrases that He uses regarding Himself or His mission. And so here, the first of seven, He says, I Am the bread of life. Now this goes back to the book of Exodus with Moses and the burning bush when Moses was commissioned to go and to tell 
Pharaoh, depending on where you're from, where I'm from, it's Pharaoh, but uh, Pharaoh, to tell Pharaoh to let the, the children of Israel go, to, to turn them loose, as it were. And uh, Moses says, who should I tell them has sent me? And the Lord said, tell them that I am has sent you. So that's a, that's a very, very strong phrase there. And we know what Jesus was saying when he would say, I am. And so the fact that Jesus uses I am as a designation for himself, that qualifies him to be or to do whatever follows that. So when he says, I am the bread of life, whoever believes in me will have everlasting life, he can only say such a thing and it be true because he is the I am. Now if I were to say to you, I'm the bread of life. If you believe in me, you're going to have everlasting life. You're going to say you're crazy, and rightfully so, right? Because we know that no human being has the right to make such a claim, right? But Jesus did. And so he's identifying himself as deity, as the very Son of God, as the very the great I Am. Now remember with me that Jesus has already had some ongoing dialogue with the crowd as they have been following him from place to place, and that they had already challenged Jesus. Jesus told them that to do the works of God was to simply believe in the one that God sent, to believe in Jesus. And they said, well, what sign are you going to give us then? What sign do you perform so that we may believe you? And so they demanded a sign to validate Jesus' claim, his identity. And they demanded a sign on par with Moses. Remember that? Moses and the manna? Because they said, our fathers ate the, ate the manna in the wilderness. And so they, they wanted Jesus to one-up that, okay? And so if you are who you say you are, then you've got to do better than even Moses did with our fathers in the wilderness. So Jesus responds to that. And he says, in fact, God had already exceeded that which had been done by Moses in the wilderness because God has now sent the true bread from heaven. The true bread, the bread of life has come down from heaven from the Father. And so Jesus says, already already done that, already trumped that. And so let's just think this through a little bit. How is it exactly that Jesus is greater how is it that Jesus... Now, the manna was miraculous. That was something significant. Maybe you don't know what this, uh, this manna is. This is how God would take care of his, his people when they were wandering through the wilderness and the desert for 40 years. They would get up in the morning, and there would be this um, some kind of a substance on the ground, like coriander seed, the Bible describes it. It's very small, and uh, I imagine it was almost like a paste, and it says that it tastes like honey wafers. And so they were allowed to get just enough for the day, and then on the, the day before Sabbath, they would get enough for two days. And if they got too much, it would actually rot, and it would begin to have worms in it and stuff like that. And so this was how God sustained the children of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness by daily gathering this manna. The word manna literally means, what is it? Because they looked at it and thought, what, what is this stuff, right? And so it was definitely miraculous, and I would say it was even spiritual, right? Because it, uh, I'm sure, as I've, I've heard some people say, that it, it actually is a picture of Christ, if you will. And so without getting into all of that, you know, the manna, what did it do? It sustained life physically. That's all it did. 
It was physical sustenance. But the heavenly bread, Jesus Christ, gives life eternally. Amen? Eternal life. The manna was temporal. It would decay, as I said. If you gathered too much of it, it would go bad. So it was something that you would have to get daily. But the bread of heaven abides eternally. The Son of God lives eternally. The manna had to be gathered daily for daily sustenance, whereas the true bread from heaven satisfies our needs once and for all. The eternal salvation that is ours in Christ, that is forever. The manna was something that had to be gathered day by day by day for 40 years. The manna sustained the Jews there in the wilderness, but the true bread of heaven gives life to the world in every successive generation. The manna was a gracious provision from God, but it really came at no expense to God. The true bread is God Himself in the flesh who paid an unfathomable cost. He paid a, a greater price than any of us could ever know to give His life for ours so that we could have everlasting life. So indeed, this is the true bread of heaven and it is greater than the manna in every single way. Amen? Greater. Greater is He. Well, verse 47 is a key verse for us to understand the rest of this text. So let's look at that again. That first little phrase, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. We need to keep that in our minds. Believing and having everlasting life is what Jesus is trying to convey here in this text. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you have everlasting life. This is... Uh, can be a very confusing and controversial text uh, because Jesus will go on to say that you have to eat His flesh and drink His blood. And we're going to get into all of that. But I, I just say this now, we have to keep that phrase in our minds, believing and having everlasting life. Because what Jesus is doing is He's using graphic, metaphorical language to illustrate a spiritual truth. He's shaking the people up. He's stirring them up. He's saying shocking things intentionally, but he's conveying a spiritual truth metaphorically. And we know Jesus did that quite a bit. But the point he's making is whoever believes in him has everlasting life. Whoever believes in Jesus will be raised up on the last day. These are the things that come out of this text. You'll have everlasting life. You'll be raised up on the last day. Whoever believes in Jesus will be united to Christ. We will become one with him. We will abide in Him and He will abide in us and that we would have the very life of God in us. As God is alive and Christ has life in the Father, He has given life to us. And so all of this is ours in Christ if we believe, if we trust in Him, if we eat of the bread as it were. You with me? All right, we've got to keep that tucked away in our mind. Verse 51. Verse 51. He says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my life, which I shall give for the life of the world. So Jesus reiterates again that he is the bread. He is the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, they will live forever. So, eating the bread is synonymous with believing. Okay? You got that? 
Eating the bread means essentially believing. That's what Jesus is, is trying. He's equating the two together because both of these things produce the same result. You've got to notice that. If you believe in Jesus, you'll have eternal life. If you eat the bread, you'll have eternal life. So it's one and the same. It's, a, it's synonymous here, synonymous language. And eating the bread, it has several implications. There are several implications that can be drawn from this metaphor. And so let's, let's just take a moment to consider this, eating the bread. What do we know about food? Well, it's useless unless you eat it. It may look good, it may smell good, uh, but you have to eat the, eat the food, right? And that, that's common sense, that's an obvious thing, right? So don't just look at the bread, you've got to eat it, all right? It does us no good if we do not consume it. The same is the case with Jesus. It's not enough to simply know about Jesus. We have to believe. We have to trust. We won't have eternal life just from hearing about it or even understanding on some level what the, what the cross is and what salvation is. It has to become very personal for you and me. We have to partake of the sacrifice, if you will. Eating is prompted by hunger. That's why the Bible says, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When you recognize your own spiritual need, when you become hungry for who God is, when you recognize that you've had enough of the world and all that it has to offer and that it does not satisfy, but there's one food that does satisfy, it is the bread of heaven. And so hunger prompts us to eat. I was hungry, you know, hungry for the Lord, sick of the world. I had that was food poisoning. I had plenty of it, you know, and I was sick of being sick. You ever just sick of being sick? Sick and tired of being sick and tired? And so hunger, spiritual hunger, it's a good thing. It leads us to the bread. Eating, it's a personal act. I can't eat for you and you can't eat for me. That's another obvious, but spiritually, maybe not so much. You know, uh, I like the phrase, God doesn't have grandchildren, he doesn't. You're either his son or his daughter, but there's no grandchildren in the kingdom of God. Every single person has to have a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And I know where I'm from in the South, that's very normal. People will, will uh, quickly tell you that they're, they're good if you were to ask them, Are you, do you know the Lord or would you go to heaven? Yes, because they used to, you know, their grand, their mamma and papa, that's what they call them there in Tennessee anyways. They used to, they were Christians, you know, my parents were Christians, or, you know, my papa built, you know, First Baptist Church in Mohawk, Tennessee, or whatever. And so, uh, you know, people somehow think that that's it, that's good, they're in, because of somebody else's faith. And it just doesn't work that way. And so you have to personally eat of the bread. Someone else can't eat it for you. Eating involves trust. You know, eating involves trust. When, I, when you eat something, you are believing that it's edible and that it's not going to make you sick um, and other, that it doesn't contain poison in it, right? And so uh, it, it communicates trust. I'm believing that Jesus is good, that He is who He says He is, that walking with him, following him, will produce exactly what he said it would. So much so, people are even willing to die for it because they trust him that much, as they should, because he's worthy of it. 
Eating the bread communicates commitment. I mean, once you eat, you're all in, you know. Uh, if you are looking at something as though it's sketchy, well, you know, uh, I remember I, just recently I had bought some meat on uh, sale because it was, you know, it was already kind of getting old. And uh, I went to grill it, and it just didn't look right. And I'm pretty sure it didn't smell right either. And I was just too paranoid to risk it, you know. But there have been times where I have... And it's like, you're all in now, you know, we'll see what happens from here. And so it, it involves commitment, man, eating the bread, you know, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Maybe I don't understand it all. Uh, maybe, maybe I still have certain fears and doubts, but I'm going to follow you, you know, I'm going all in. And so this, uh, the metaphor of bread here, man, very, very significant. A lot of rich truths that can be mined out of what Jesus is saying here. He really was a master teacher. Now uh, Jesus expands the metaphor. He says that the bread that he's going to give is his flesh. So now it's starting to get a little more bizarre to the people that are there in the crowd. It's one thing to say, I'm the bread of heaven, but now he's going to say, but actually... The bread is my flesh that I'm going to give. So now it's like, okay, now it's getting a little more, a little more weird to the hearers anyways. We understand what he's saying. And so now <clears throat> this is sacrificial language. This is sacrificial language here. Jesus is saying that he is going to give himself sacrificially, that he's going to give of his own body, that he's going to give himself away. And it's, it's, a, it's willingly. Jesus is doing this willingly in love. Jesus came as the Lamb of God, John the Baptist declared, who takes away the sins of the world. Amen? He was the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, the only fitting sacrifice for the sins of the world. None of us were qualified to appease God's eternal, holy, infinite wrath. And that's, that's really the bad news that we all face in this life, is that God is eternally, infinitely, holy, just, and good. And we have transgressed His law. We have offended His infinite holiness. Now, we don't even, we just could never even begin to understand the depth or the magnitude of what I just said. We just can't, not in this life. One day we will, we will understand that. In this life, that just blow, blows right over us, unfortunately. We don't even flinch. But it is true. And so we have to answer for the fact that we have offended and transgressed against this infinitely holy God. And there's nothing that we could do about it. We can never ever repay Him for what, how we have offended Him. We just can't. We are finite beings. So Jesus, the very Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the I Am, the one who came in flesh, came in flesh. He was born into this world of a virgin so that He could be our representative, so that He could be our faithful and sympathetic high priest. He was tempted at every point, yet without sin. And then He could suffer in our place as our substitute. And that's the language that Jesus uses here as well. He said that He would give His flesh for the life of the what? For the world. Jesus said that he would give his flesh for the world. So not only is it sacrificial language, it's substitutionary language. Jesus would come to die on our behalf. He would fulfill God's law in every point. 
That's, we could never even conceive such a thing. We violate God's law daily. But this one, the very darling of heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, he would fulfill God's law at every single point, perfectly, perfectly holy and righteous. Then he would give his life in place for ours as a substitution, and then we would receive his righteousness as a gift from God. So that's the way that this works. I will get into heaven because of good works, but they're not my own. They're the good works of Jesus Christ. Amen? His perfect sinlessness and then His substitutionary death on the cross in my place. Believing that, trusting that, that is what it means to eat the the bread, if you will. So eating the bread, trusting in the sacrificial substitutionary work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to live, to die, to give himself for the sins of the world, for you and for I. Now, this idea of eating, let me talk a little bit more about this. Um, This expresses intimacy because there's a reason why Jews would not even eat with Gentiles. Maybe if you've been studying your Bible for any length of time, you know uh, Gentiles would be non-Jews. And the Jews... They were very careful not to associate with Gentiles and especially not to eat with them because the act of eating, you're taking the same meal, both of you are breaking that and, and ingesting it, and in a sense, they kind of saw that as becoming one. It was, uh, it was an act of intimacy, if you will, having that fellowship, breaking bread together. And so I would say the same is true here. As we partake of the bread, it's an intimate exchange with the Lord. As we trust and believe in Him, eat of the bread, we become one with Jesus, right? And so the language here of eating, believing, and eating, it suggests appropriating and assimilating the gift of God. It becomes mine, right? He's my Father. Jesus is my Lord. It's my gospel. His sacrifice becomes mine. Amen? And that's what Jesus is inviting the people into. That is the level that He is calling them to. That is the level that He is calling them to. So, with that, uh, point number two, what we're going to see now, we're going to begin to see the reaction of the crowd. And... uh, As I said, Jesus declared himself to be the bread of heaven. Now we're going to see that Jesus dismays the crowd with this shocking language. So look with me at verse 52. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So Jesus' words were so shocking that the people began to, were told that they began to quarrel among themselves, but the, the language here is actually, it's much more, um, much more violent, if you will. I mean, they, they were literally, uh, some commentators, like they were starting to fight, like people were getting mad. I'm talking hostile rage. They were arguing vehemently. And so I think the idea is that there were some people here that were tracking with Jesus, and they were good with it. They're like, okay. But then there were other people that are like, this is crazy. This guy's a blasphemer. What do you mean? Eat, eat flesh and drink your blood. And they got so mad, so passionate, that it was almost 
fistfights breaking out. Only one time have I ever almost seen a fistfight break out in a Bible study. I was teaching on the Trinity at a, a faith-based recovery program called U-Turn for Christ. And uh, we were in there, and we were working through this, this uh, topic. And one guy spoke up, and I think he got the answer wrong. And another guy looked across the room and laughed at him. And the guy, he took his Bible and just slammed it on the ground and then looked like he was getting ready to come across the room and just, like, swing on him. And I was like, all right, guys, let's calm down just a little bit, all right? And so we had to stop and pray. People can get passionate about this stuff. They can get upset. And they can get offended for one reason or another. And so it, doesn't, it, it wouldn't surprise me to think that people are ready to come to blows over this in Israel over here at that point in time amongst this crowd. And they say, how can this be? How can this be? They could be asking, you know, how, how does that even work? I mean, that, that's kind of reminiscent of Nicodemus. Remember that? Nicodemus said, man, how, how is a person born again? How does that even work, right? Or they might just be saying, man, how could he say such a thing? This is so clearly, you know, blasphemous. It could be both, I don't know. But Jesus then takes it up a notch. He doesn't say, you know what, you guys, you're right, I'm sorry. Probably wasn't the best way to, to try to communicate that. Let me, let me uh, you know, let me dial it down. He doesn't do that. He actually takes it up a notch and gets even more offensive, and he says, you got to drink his blood. Now, that's outrageous language. I mean, even for us, we would get that's just bizarre. But for them, oh, man, it doesn't get much more shocking than that. The Old Testament explicitly, uh, that was forbidden, explicitly forbidden in the Old Testament. The, uh, the Bible says life is in the blood, and so they were not to eat meat that had blood in it. They weren't to drink blood in any way. And in fact, in Acts 15, when they were trying to lay out, you know, do the, the, do the Gentiles need to actually become Jews before they can come to Christ? And they determined that wasn't necessary. They just need to believe in Jesus. There were just a few little things that they asked that the Gentiles observed so as not to be an offense. And one of them, there were like three things, and one of them was not to drink blood or eat anything with blood in it. That probably had something to do with pagan pagan stuff, I, I imagine, but nonetheless, I just say that to say they were still, even then, mindful of this concept, and so for Jesus to say something like that was, uh, it was explosive, it was offensive, and you know, Jesus at times was purposely offensive, you know, sometimes Jesus would seemingly offend people intentionally, and so, you know, let me just say Jesus was not trolling people. You know what I mean, that, that phrase, trolling? Like when people go online and they just go out of their way to say stuff to make people mad. I mean, I'm sure maybe some of us in here have done that. Maybe we are tempted to do it sometimes. That's not what Jesus was doing. There was a point here. There was something that he was trying to do. And I will say this. I think one thing is Jesus just does not allow people to be neutral. Jesus does not allow people to be neutral. You're either for him or against him. You're either with him or against him. And so people were here following him for all kinds of reasons, and Jesus knew that they didn't believe, and he cut right to the heart, and he said some things that would really just shake up the crowd and explode the, the, the crowd, if you will, and 
when it was all said and done, those who really believed would stick around. And we know at the end of the chapter how many were left. How many? Twelve. That's it. That's it. You know, I remember one time I heard a sermon titled, if, uh, if Jesus had a church in my town, my church would be bigger. Now, he was, he was really taking a dig against himself because what he was saying is, is that Jesus said offensive things. He just chased people off. And we try to do the exact opposite. We're trying to build it up. You know, we don't want to say anything offensive. You know, God forbid that we would do anything like that. Whereas Jesus, he would say the hard stuff, man. It would, it would thin out the crowds, right? And so such was the case here. He definitely exposed and did not allow people to stay neutral. He thinned out the crowd. And I just think it's important to recognize that Jesus was offensive at times for whatever reason. I'm not saying so therefore we should be too, right? What I'm trying to say is the message is offensive. The Bible is offensive. It is. And there are truths found within that are hard for us to grapple with, even as Christians, but it's especially difficult for unbelievers, and we have to be okay with that. We can't apologize for the Bible. We can't water it down. We can't try to make it say something other than what it clearly says. You know, we don't, I've heard it said, don't defend the Bible. Just let the tiger out of the cage. You know, that's all you got to do. Just let it say what it says. It can take care of itself, you know. We live in a postmodern, humanistic, Western democratic society. That's a mouthful. But postmodern, basically, it's just like there is no absolute truth. My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. And we cannot be absolute about anything, even though that in and of itself is an absolute, right? And so that is self-contradicting. But we also live in a humanistic age where that is we're all that there is. There's nothing beyond us. We are good ultimately, that the answers for life are basically found within, and, uh, you know, we have the ability to, to reach this utopia and to be better just because it's in us, right? And so that's kind of an oversimplification of humanistic, humanism. And we live in a Western democratic society. We have rights. We have a say-so. Everybody's got an opinion, and everybody's got a platform from which they can let their opinion be made known right? More so now than ever before. Well, that's the culture that we have been brought up in. Some of us more so. Obviously, this has really evolved quickly, um, and so a lot of us can probably remember times when it wasn't quite this intense, but you know what? This is the society in which we live. We live in a place where you must never offend. You know that, right? We live in a time and a place where you do not offend ever, you don't do that. People's self-esteem is to be guarded at all cost, and it is to be built up and protected always. Everybody gets a trophy, okay? Everybody gets a trophy. Everybody's a winner. I think we're seeing the fruit of that now. And I think maybe when I was a child growing up, that was kind of a new concept, and that was kind of a, uh, an experiment, if you will. And so now I think we're seeing the fallout from that. You know, people's self-perception of reality, that's to be accepted and celebrated. So not only must I accept your perception of reality, I have to celebrate it. I have to celebrate it. Even if I 
consider it to be totally wrong or unbiblical, uh, whatever the case may be. You guys know what I'm saying here. This is the society that we live in today, and do not think for a moment that we're not tainted by that on some level. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. That word conformed, the idea there is that it's happening to us whether we know it or like it. doesn't matter. We're being conformed. So the only solution is to be transformed. Right? We have to transcend the culture and its influences and have our minds be washed by the Word of God and be transformed to overcome this, uh, you know, this uh, being molded into the culture's image. Now, I say all that to say, so we can't approach the Word of God like that. And the temptation is to do that. We want to soften the hard truths of Scripture. We want to do what we can to make it less offensive because it offends us and we're afraid it's going to offend the hearers. And so I just say we've got to be careful about that. We cannot approach the Bible with these cultural presuppositions. They are offensive. Jesus was offensive. He didn't mind being offensive. He would offend people. And so I'm the messenger, we shouldn't be offensive, but we have to let the Bible say what the Bible says. Amen? And the Bible, if we're honest, it can be offensive. Well, verse 54, Jesus says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So Jesus keeps just driving this deeper and deeper. Jesus said, whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood will have eternal life. Now, this would be understandably shocking and confusing, don't you think? But it is obviously metaphorical language, which Jesus commonly used. Jesus said he's the vine and we're the branches. Nobody believes for a moment that Jesus is a vine or that we're a branch, right? Jesus said he is the door. And we enter in through him. Well, we know that Jesus is not a door. So there is a time when we have to, you know, we just have to like recognize Jesus speaks metaphorically. This would be one of them. I like uh, one commentator, D.A. Carson. He says this, Any dullard could see that Jesus was not speaking literally. No one would suppose Jesus was seriously advocating cannibalism and offering himself as the first meal. I just put that in there because of the word dullard. I like that word, dullard. I thought, dullard, what is that? I looked it up. It's like dimwit. I mean, there's all kinds. It gets bad, actually. Uh, but one, one synonym was silly billy. And I, <laughs> I just thought, man, that's, uh, that's hilarious. And so he's, you know, I love Carson. Any dullard could see. That's, that's, I mean, that's like intellectual. That's an intellectual insult. You know, that's, what I was, that's how the intellects, the theologians do it. You know, the... That wasn't very nuanced. I mean, that's like fighting words right there to, uh, to some of these commentators and scholars, you know what I mean? And so, anyways, that's like talking about someone's mama right there. Warren Wearsby, he said, All Jesus said was, Just as you take food and drink within your body and it becomes part of you, so you must receive me within your innermost being so that I can give you life. So that's kind of a paraphrase of how he would interpret what that phrase means. And so, um, we've already looked at verse 40 some time back, but I would say that's a parallel statement to what we're uh, reading here that helps us, again, to follow what Jesus is saying. Let me read that, G uh, John six forty, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, 
and I will raise him up at the last day. So he who sees the Son and believes has everlasting life and will be raised up at the last day. So seeing the Son and believing results in everlasting life and resurrection, right? You following me? Seeing and believing results in everlasting life. Eating the flesh and drinking the blood, according to this text, produces the same results. So we understand this to be synonymous. I'm driving this into the ground because this is important, and I'll, I'll explain why. And so Jesus is proving through this language here, it's eating and drinking is metaphorical for seeing and believing. Now, why is that important? And this may seem obvious to us, but many people have taken this verse to mean this is the Lord's table, and that when people eat the, the bread and the wine, it's actually Jesus' body that they're eating. It's transformed. The, the, the wafer and the wine is transformed into the literal body and blood of Jesus. There's a phrase for that. Does anybody know what it is? Anybody starts with a T? Transubstantiation. That's a big one. And so that's, a, that's, that's the idea, and it comes from this verse comes from this verse. And so this, I'm going to talk about why this is not talking about communion, but I don't want to take away from the fact that what Jesus is saying here certainly is worth considering when we take communion. You know, these are profound truths here. But uh, I just want to kind of speak to this for a moment. There are several reasons why this is not talking about communion. Several reasons why this is definitely not talking about transubstantiation the, the real presence of Christ, sometimes it's called. When Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper in Luke 22, he uses the word soma in the Greek. That's his body. And here, he's using a different word for flesh. It's sarks. So even in the grammar, there's different vocabulary being used. So that's one hint. The grammar here suggests that eating and drinking is a one-time act. It's a one-time deal. You eat, you drink, that is to say you have believed Jesus savingly. And that's a one-time deal. You're saved once and for all, eternal life. It's not something that you have to regularly pursue, right? It's not the kind of thing where you, you're saved and then you lose your salvation because you sinned and then you've got to go get saved again. Does that make sense? It's a one-time deal. Communion, however, we're told that we're to do it regularly. We're to do it often. And Jesus said, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. And so there's a distinction here even in the grammar that is being used. Um, the Lord's Supper hasn't even been instituted yet at this point. All right, the, That happens the night before Jesus is crucified. He institutes the Lord's Supper there with his disciples. So at this point in time, people will be totally lost and confused as to what he's even talking about. And he's talking to mostly unbelievers. Now, if this were talking about communion... That would be saying that one receives eternal life by taking communion, right? If eating his flesh and drinking his blood is what gives you eternal life, and if transubstantiation is a fulfillment of this, then that's saying that we are going to have eternal life from taking communion. But the Scriptures are clear that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone and nothing else, right? And finally, Scripture and the early church contend that the Lord's table is exclusively for believers. It's not a means of salvation for unbelievers. It's an act of worship for 
the church. Uh, Justin Martyr, he was uh, born in the year 100. He was an apologist and philosopher. He says this, uh, Justin Martyr stated that no one was allowed to partake of communion except those who believed that the things Christians taught were true and that those who had already confessed their faith in baptism. So you couldn't even have communion unless you were baptized in the early church. It was that sacred. It was for believers only. And so I just say all that to say this is very clear that we're not talking about... Um, we're not talking about, uh, you know, communion. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? All right. Well, anyways, the point of the verse, back to the point of the verse, Jesus is saying that whoever eats of the flesh and drink, drinks his blood would abide in him and he in us. And so this is the union that we have with Christ. And that's the most special thing about all of this. We are united to Christ through faith. He is ours and we are... His. This is a very special reality for the believer. When you believe Jesus, you are united to Him. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If you are in Christ, if you have believed unto salvation, you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In him. Christ became sin. The one who knew no sin became sin, so that we in him would have his righteousness. Colossians 1.27, it says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, to be in Christ. And lastly, Colossians 2.9, for in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. So to be in Christ, you know, that's what it is to believe, to drink, to eat, to trust, to be born again, to have Christ live in our hearts, to be made alive in Him, and to have this sweet fellowship with Him for all of eternity. So we have to eat the bread, amen? You have to trust. So have you? Have you trusted Christ? Have you believed in His perfect and saving work? It's not enough to just look at the bread. We have to eat it, amen? This is a time when appropriation is totally permissible. In fact, it's encouraged. Jesus says, appropriate. Take the bread, eat it. It's yours, and it's mine to give, and I want you to have it. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise your holy name. We bless you, and we, we just want to give you our lives and worship you, and thank you that our offering to you is acceptable in Christ. Thank you that... Jesus, you are the bread that came down from heaven, that you are ours, and we're yours, and we give you honor, we give you glory, we give you praise, in Jesus' name, amen.